Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we usually examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. But this time we are going for something a little bit different. The new Netflix series Kunk on Earth. What do you mean we're not doing Kunk on Earth? Yeah, it's far more accurate and better made and funny on purpose. Yeah, 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 yeah. As it turns out, we're still looking into Graham Hancock's Ancient Apocalypse. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host, Frederick, and this is episode 32. This time we will focus on the episodes America's Lost Civilizations and A Fatal Winter. So we will look at the sites as uh, Poverty Point, Serpent Mount and the underground city of Derinkuyu. We have visited two of these uh, sites in the past, but with an extraterrestrial hypothesis. So it might be interesting to see what uh, is the same and uh, the difference between these two series. We are also joined by Dr. Andrew Kinkella later in the episode. Now, remember that you can find sources, resources, and further reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info to me if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now, when we're finished with the preparations, let's dig into the episode. Let's start our expedition to the Americas. Graham Hancock gives us a whole episode centered on North America based on his book America Before. And this episode starts with Hancock complaining about the Clovis first, claiming that this idea was taught until 2010, but as we learn from Dr. Bill Farley's insight in episode 31, This could not be further from the truth. In fact, the debate over the earliest human inhabitants of America had already been primarily settled in the 1990s. But after finishing lamenting about Clovis, we're taken to a site called Poverty Point. The site that unfolds before us is truly awe-inspiring. Six prominent ridges arranged in a manner that almost resembles a Greek amphitheater dominate the landscape. Along with this striking formation we can see five original mounds and a vast plaza with several post circles. And these impressive structures built between 1700 to 1100 BCE bear witness to, um, to the sophistication and skill of the people inhabiting this land. The ridges which boast a diameter of approximately 700 meters or 2,100 feet, measures 10 kilometers, 6 miles. Among these remarkable structures we found Mount A, which, um, despite its maybe lackluster name, stands tall behind the central square of the earthworks. And these mounds rise to an incredible 22 meters, affording us an unparalleled view in the area over the main plaza. 
though the precise function of this impressive structure remains uh, shrouded in mystery, it's clear that it played a vital role within the complex and the community that once called this place home. Although the people who constructed Poverty Point had already domesticated crops like squash and sunflower, the way of life remained predominantly that of hunter-fisher-gatherers. The archaeological record provides ample evidence, including the discovery of stone artifacts like ways for fishing nets and atlatas, a type of spear thrower. And these findings suggest that the builders of Poverty Point were not yet reliant on farming. And the concept that a non-agrarian society could construct such a large and complex monuments was once considered a far-fetched idea by many archaeologists. However, as more sites with reliable dating has been uncovered, this notion has been more widely accepted. It is um, believed that more complex political structures capable of organizing and executing such impressive feats have existed without relying on agriculture. But it's worth noting, however, while Poverty Point have evidence of some sort of political system, there is no real evidence of a social stratification within the society that built it. But note that an outside force isn't necessary really to explain these monuments. Now there's a few things that we can rule out about Poverty Point. No burial has been found on the site, not, not even in the mounds. There are also no signs of permanent settlement at the site, which suggests that people who came to Poverty Point if not were entirely nomadic, likely had their settlements elsewhere. While there is evidence of extensive long-distance trade at the site, it's unlikely that trade was the primary function of Poverty Point, as there is no evidence of exchange of non-durable items. If we go and listen to Graham Hancock, he believes the site to have some sort of astronomical function, in contradiction to Hancock's idea that he alone would think this, there's actually some archaeologists that would agree with him. While Kidder and other archaeologists argue that it's unlikely that migratory hunter-gatherers would require a stationary solicital observatory, other researchers have taken a more moderate stance, acknowledging that, well, it's pl possible that the mounds have an astronomical alignment, but that our current understanding is not sufficient enough to confirm this. See, Graham, if you get down from that high horse and approach the material more honestly, we could actually have a meaningful conversation. Now, the issue with celestial alignments is that they are rather subjective and depending on the site. They can line up with several different things. At poverty points, we don't have any clear markers, really. In these cases, we would look for important stars or planets within the mythology. Unfortunately, there are no surviving mythical accounts from the arcade period when most of the site was built. We also know that the site was reused in later period. Mount Dea was created by a later culture around 700 CE. 
And you could ask if the site has been changed to maybe fit their religion and important alignments compared to the original creators. But there are other things that the site could align to or represent other than astronomical. Some suggest it has a connection to the landscape, and a good case could be made that the ridges between Mount C and D reference the river nearby. Hancock is also leaving out potential acoustic enhancement that could have been part of the reason for the site's construction. And to have a chance to figure things out, we need to do a more objective research and excavation. Speculations are, well, well and fine, but we need more than someone's opinion. Why Hancock has chosen to bring a Poverty Point over Watson Break could be because Poverty Point looks better on camera. Now, Watson Break is a site that is much, much older, going back possibly to 4000 BCE with the first mound constructed just 500 years after the first settlement, and that's, well, much older than Poverty Point. It, it might not be as impressive in size, but in age it definitely takes the cake. The um, original creators at Watson Break were hunter-fisher-gatherers, too. We know this due to the seeds found in the earliest layer. None of them show signs of domestication. As mentioned, we see a temporary site occupation for about 500 years before the first mound was constructed. Hancock spends a whole chapter on Watson breaking his novel America Before, so he's clearly familiar with the site. And he repeats the same theory that the mounds must be aligned with the solstices, and he proves this by drawing lines through the mounds that's arranged in a circular shape, claiming that they line up. I mean, the items in a circle could align with several different things. Hancock also agrees that a nomadic culture might not have much use for a stationary solstice mound, but argues that they must have some advanced civilization come in and teach them this, adding that the evidence adds up to towards that they worshipped a sky ground deity. He does not claim it's a snake, he's just implying that it's a flying snake. And when we're talking about snakes... We're no strangers to Serpent Mound on the show. If you recall in episode 21, Aliens in the Old West, we delved into the ancient alien proponents theories surrounding the site. However, it appears that Hancock has a personal stake in the matter surrounding Serpent Mound as he claims to have been banned from setting a single foot on the site. Now, Hancock believes that the administration decided to shut him out is motivated by personal and ideological reasons as they seek to censor his views. Now, I discovered some interesting details when I contacted the Ohio History Connection for more information on Graham Hancock's visit to the Serpent Mound. Hancock initially requested four days of commercial filming at the site, which would have required, well, some accommodation of a significant number of people. And given the request scope, it's not unsurprisingly that uh, the Ohio's history connection declined. Additionally, they confirmed that Hancock was never actually banned from the site. 
contrary to what have been suggestions in some reports. The commercial filming application by ITN was the only inquiry declined by the Ohio History Connection. Mr. Hancock was not prohibited from visiting the site as a member of the public. They were not allowed to film on site, just as the note that he read out in the show loud <laughs> stated. And this state from Ohio History Connection is not surprising if you look back on previous productions like Ancient Aliens and America on Earth behaviors. Add to this that the Shawnee tribes acknowledge Serpent Mound as a holy site and that there have been incidents before. And uh, Chief Ben Barnes said in a speech, quote, Consider it to be a sacred site, and we ask you to treat this remarkable place as you would any cathedral, synagogue, or mosque. With all these things in mind, the decision from Ohio history is reasonable and, to any other person, quite understandable, but... Graham is not interested in hearing any of this. He, he instead decided to dox a staff member or dox the staff mom member who answered his request by posting their contact details on his Twitter account. Graham Hancock seems to believe that he was banned from the Serpent Mound by because the Ohio History Connection is afraid that he will expose the truth about the mound's alignment towards the sun. According to Hancock, trees have been planted to conceal this fact. However, the claim is quite far-fetched, as there's actually signs marking the sun's positions during the solstices, as Carl Fagan can attest to. He would probably have learned this information if Hancock had simply refrained from filming and just visited the park. Instead, he has acted petulantly and unprofessionally, behaving more like a spoiled child than a respected researcher. When it comes to dating the Serpent Mound, there's quite a bit of a debate. Graham Hancock, however, seems unaware about this. In 2011, E.V. Herman led a research project that took C-14 dates from core drillings. That seems to suggest that the mound was from the Adena culture, dating back to 500 BCE to 200 BCE. And these dating align with the theory put forward by Potman in 1819, based on the nearby burial mounds. However, the current dating places the mound in Fort Ancient culture, dating to 1000 CE to 1750 CE. And that's based on in-situ C14 dating by Fletcher and others back in 1996. We could also add iconography to the evidence for a later date. While we know that the Adena culture did build mounds, we don't see any serpents represented in the art. The exception would be the Adena effigy pipe, maybe. But it's quite a leap from no snake to build a sizable snake-based monument. I also want to stress that the new data is from core drilling, something we discussed previously could be prone to contaminations. Herman and others also mention a buried uh, A-horizon. The issue here is that Potman in 1890 noted that the A-horizon had been, or the old A-horizon had been removed from the site. 
And to clarify, the A horizon in archaeology refers to the top layer of soil that has undergone a significant uh, biological activity containing organic matter and nutrients that support plant growth. And depending on the specific context, this layer is typically found about 5 to 20 centimeter below the surface. And conversely, the O horizon refers to the surface layer of organic debris, such as leaves and twigs, that's not yet decomposed. And we should note that what we see today is a reconstruction mainly based on the drawings from E. Squire and E. Davis in 1846. But they were not the only ones documenting the site. In 1884, John McLean created an illustration showing the monument with an addition. On top of the serpent and the egg, or vulva, we also see a frog. Yeah, a frog. Is this type of representation maybe found somewhere else? As a matter of fact, we find a similar depiction over at Picture Cave in Warren County in Missouri. I might mention here that uh, VW H. Holmes did another illustration in 1886 showing an additional figure. It's maybe a bit of a Rorschach test, but uh, you can decide if it's a frog or not. And these three icons um, are standard within the Mississippian iconography, a culture we know had exchanges with the fourth ancient culture. The icons we have been decoded with the help of the tradition from the Degian Sioux to be representations of the grape serpents, the serpent mound or a volvoid, and lastly, a representation of the first woman or old woman who never dies. And these ideas are present in the Shawnee tradition, while the depiction of these themes are slightly different than in Picture K, for example, they are undeniably similar. The Mississippian culture has more representation of the first woman and snakes, themes that we really don't see in the Adena culture. A sandstone pipe with this motif has also been found in Ohio, placing again this idea with Fort Ancient and Mississippian culture exchange. The question regarding Serpent Mound is far from settled, while Leper and other present a strong case for the Fort Ancient days, Romaine and Herman have some compelling arguments for their side. And as all of these authors note in the public discussion, they agree that while ideas have exchanged that improve the hypothesis, we need more study of the site. Our current in understanding is insufficient and, and this is quite an excellent example on how science work. We need this discussion in journals to test ideas and get new knowledge and Hanka could actually learn something from this. And on that bombshell, we will leave the Americas for now and head east and underground. Welcome to Cappadocia, Turkey, a region famous for its unique geology, breathtaking hot air balloon rides and mysterious underground cities. These cities with their elaborate tunnel system carved deep into the ground and mountain sides have captured the attention of 
archaeologists and tourists alike. With more than 200 underground cities identified, their origin and purpose have been subject to much speculation. In episode 12 we discussed the ancient alien theories about the region with Bill Farley who suggested that these sites were created as massive bunkers to save humans from an alien war. On the other hand, Hancock replaced aliens with natural disaster to explain the underground cities. Dating these sites is not uncomplicated or impossible, but harder, mainly due to the lack of organic material to date. Hancock's statement that we can't date stone is both right and wrong. Dating stone itself would be pointless, since it's, you know, would be millions of years old. Now, we could try to date the quartz within the sediment with uh, optically stimulated luminescence testing, for example. But that would only work if it had been in sunlight and then buried. So in these cases, we would look at non-organic artifacts, similar sites and ancient sources. Let's take a moment to explore the date associated with Derenkuyu, one of many underground cities in Cappadocia. The earliest date we can find related to Derenkoyu might be a Hittite tool, and authors speculate that the site could have started during the Hittite era. It could be argued that dates have been moved or maybe arrived later since it's a single find, but the earliest possible date for Derenkoyu might be between 1600 BCE and 1100. BCE. The theory is not improbable. The site of Göksetoprak has a possible Hittite temple carved into the rock. Unfortunately, we don't find any Hittite glyph or typical architecture that could help uh, support the idea even more. While the Hittite date is plausible, archaeologists need more evidence to obtain a more precise date. As we delve deeper into the history of Cappadocia's underground cities, we discover the account from ancient writers that provide us a bit of further insight to their use. Xenophon, a Greek historian and general, was in the region in 401 BCE, leading the mercenary army called the Ten Thousand. And they were hired to help Cyrus the Younger to take the Persian throne from uh, Cyrus' brother. Now, Xenophon wrote about the underground houses that had a mouth like a well. This indicates the practice of construction underground cities was already in use then at least. We also have Vitruvius, a Roman architect who wrote about the Phyragians who succeeded the Hittites. And according to Vitruvius, they dug shelters due to a lack of wood. So we have evidence that plays the construction of some of uh, these underground sites in the BCE era. However, most of these cities were that we see today were constructed between 600 CE and 1100 CE. Many already that was already existing was also expanded during this later era. Now these cities, as you understand, was not built once and then used once. They were reused throughout the centuries to escape different enemies. And they were not actually abandoned until quite recently. 
We are sure that these were known and used at least in 1909 during the beginning of the Armenian Genocide in Turkey. Derinkuyu and other locales were probably not entirely abandoned until 1926 and it was not until that point most of them become forgotten by the people who were left behind. So we know a great deal about the age and use of these sites, but how Hancock could get the 10,000 BCE is quite beyond me. He offers no evidence supporting the earlier data except for stone access that was created around 10,000 BCE was found within the vicinity. Cappadocia has a lot of tuff, a kind of volcanic rock formed from the ashes after an eruption. It's usually quite soft and easy to work with. While it's possible to shape this rock with stone tools, we don't see any sign, uh, signs tying these cities to an earlier era. There's no population really large enough to do this type of excavation with stone tools in the regions. Surely not to create the numbers of city that at least Hancock described was created 10,000 BCE. Now Graham Hancock also agrees with ancient aliens that the site is unusable for defense. The explanation Hancock presents is if the enemies were to find the entrance they could just smash the soft tough door. Now Tough is not so brittle that it could be done within a few minutes. That's probably why they also had a couple of these round doors after each other. If the enemy breached the gate, the population would still have a better chance of defense in the narrow tunnels and, you know, up in the surface. And we could apply the same kind of idea to a walled city. The walls can be climbed, the gates can be broken. Does that mean that the city wall must have a different purpose? Probably not, while they do have in some cases, but... <laughs> if you listen to Hancock, Darren Curry was built for protection not from people or enemies, but from nature. He claims that the surface become too cold to live on due to the meteoric impact and the floods that were going on due to this. Therefore, the people dug into the rock where there's always a stable temperature, like in a root cellar. Now, I rented a place in Spain that was dug out in the mountainside, and it really did have a pleasant indoor climate, even if it was scorching outside. No AC or other things needed, just close the door properly. Like in a root cellar, you must isolate the entrance properly for this to work, though. These sites have a lot of ventilation shafts though, and in Derinkuyu, temperatures have been monitored. The seventh floor within the complex may reach to minus 11 Celsius, and usually stay between 3 to 15 degrees cooler than the ground floor. Quite far from, you know, Hancock's comfortable temperatures. So the material evidence for Hancock's idea is missing, but we know that there's not only material culture he looks at, there's also myth and legends. And in this episode we hear a fantastic tale of from the Zoroastrian religion. Graham tells about the ancient king Jima, who is instructed to build an underground shelter before a long-lasting winter. 
that a snake in the sky will tell when the time is near. As you might expect, this is not the story written down in the Zoroastrian text. The story is only possible if you mix and match from Zoroastrian texts such as Avesta and then Pavli. The god Ahura Mazda indeed tell Yima that the winter is coming and that he needs to build a shelter. The word he used is Vara, which is translated chiefly to a type of enclosure of stone or a barn. Yima later asked how to build this Vara, and Ahura Mazda answered as follow. Oh fair Yima, son of Vivangat, crush the earth with a stamp of thy heel, and then knead it with thy hands as the potter does when kneading the potter's clay. So he instructs Yima to build with uh, bricks, basically. And the snake appears in later texts of Pavli concerning demons. Nothing in uh, the tellings refer to Jima or the story in Avesta. And it's more of a description of the demon's movement than being an actual snake shape. While Hancock has created a Amazing story is not something we can really use as evidence, right? We can't really change the source mat- material to fit our preferred idea. Let's close the door to Darren Kuyo for this time, but let's welcome our guest for this episode. So I want to welcome our next guest to the show, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, who... Um, is the professor at Moore University, and you're the host of the Sudo Archaeology podcast. That's and you right. also do a YouTube series called um, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology, if I'm correct. That is right. Yeah. So, um, as you said, again, it's great to be here, Frederick. I always enjoy <laughs> meeting a brother in arms and talking about both of us, I'm sure, have so many similar. Uh, experiences having to deal in sort of the the media world of archaeology, which I think is so very important. And I wish more archaeologists like you or I, you know, did this Mm. kind of thing. Uh, So yes, that's me. I'm uh, a professor of archaeology, like you said, at Moore Park College in Southern California. My specialty is the ancient Maya, where I worked for years in the uh, Belizean jungle. I worked in Belize primarily on the cenotes. So those are little, they're like mini lakes, pools of water deep in the jungle. And I talked about how the cenotes relate to the pyramids. So that's my main research focus in, in archaeology. And at this point in my career, I've also done a decent amount of local archaeology here in Southern California hmm. with my students. So that's my kind of academic archaeology side. But then I have, a, as you talked about my kind of media side where I have my uh, podcast. I'm actually part of two podcasts, one called the CRM Archaeology Podcast, which is very focused on Mm -hmm. sort of the business side of archaeology in Southern California or or in the United States, I should say. And then I have the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, which is near and dear to my heart. And then I have my, my YouTube channel where I do short videos on just anything people are wondering about about sort of basic archaeology concepts and that kind of thing i've also written a textbook um, and i <laughs> i'm on television shows once in a long while like for the science channel or that kind of stuff i'm sort of a i'm a talking head right i'm a um, yeah 
I'm an expert that they might interview from time to time. That's very rare, but that happens too. So there you go. That's that's me. But are you are really a real expert if you haven't been on Ancient Alien L or? <laughs> I know, I know. I, I don't count. Uh, I can't believe you would bring that up this early in the interview, Frederick. You just tear me down. I have not been on Ancient Aliens. But, you know, funny enough, and I'm sure we'll get into this, if they reached out, I wouldn't necessarily say no because I wouldn't mind being the academic nerd that they say is wrong. You know, I would never say something like there's an Atlantis or anything like that. But it's it's an odd rope that we walk in archaeology in terms of how do we get our voice out? Like if we're never a part of any of this kind of stuff, then nobody hears mm -hmm. us. So Maybe it's worth it sometimes to go into the lion's den and be interviewed by somebody like Ancient Aliens. It's just as long as you don't say anything foolish or unscientific. I don't know. It's a tough call. But you think there's a line to walk there because editing skills among this show can be quite severe. We had this example from the Maltese archaeologist they bring up in the show who uh, later came out and uh, talked about how she was uh, quote mind or edited out of context to fit Hancock's narrative. Yeah. Don't see a danger in that. Oh, there is. The show? There is a danger in that. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we've all of a sudden just jumped into talking about extremes. Like, you know, would you as a professional archaeologist go on a show like Ancient Aliens? And it's, hmm. oh, it's a roll of the dice, you know, but it's not. For me, it wouldn't be an outright no. It would be sort of like, let me see what you're talking about. If if I can state things in a logical manner and be the other voice, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and there is a point where I don't even care if they say, oh, well, that other voice is wrong. It's... <laughs> It is an opportunity to get out to the general public, you know, and love it or hate it. Something like Ancient Aliens has huge reach, you know, that the more um, grounded scientific shows, unfortunately, will never have. So it's it's, hmm. you know, this is the kind of stuff that we that keeps <laughs> us up nights, you know, um, again, it's never happened to me. I've never had to I've never had to make that terrible choice, uh, but yeah, I, I, I can see it. You know, yeah, I just come to think about it. it didn't go all too well for, for example, Brad Lepper. He was on Ancient Aliens mm -hmm. with the Serpent Mound episode oh, and right. kind of the cause on why they weren't allowed to film right. Ancient Apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah, because they remember what happened back with Ancient Aliens when they right. told oh, we will come and interview you. And then I think he has one line in that episode from, I think he had a full hour interview and they just took <laughs> one line and then filmed the mound and then said it was built by aliens and <laughs> i think ohio state never wanted really to get people back but right it is a danger that it can backfire to appear quite oh, severe i am and not disagreeing <laughs> you know there is there is a total danger but Again, we're getting into right here some of the hardest questions in reaching out for archaeology to the public. You know, do you do you attempt that big reach? Even if even if you come off looking like a fool, is all media appearances good media appearances? Meaning, you know, even if you look poorly, maybe they come to your <laughs> website, maybe they re recognize your name, and then you can say tell them the correct stuff. You know, it's 
Hmm. It, it is a terrible, terrible deal with the devil, some of, some of that stuff. But um, I do find in my experience, and again, it's very difficult, but I find that most academics are way too, way too conservative, you know, and they won't, they won't even go on shows for the science channel or something. They, they just think it's somehow yeah. below them or somehow it's dirty, you know, and we just can't do that because what's going to happen is as what's already happened, let's face it, the general public believes all the stupid ancient aliens, ancient apocalypse crap. And not only do they believe it, they actively hate people like you and me who tell the truth. I'm sure you've gotten so much like <laughs> hate mail and stuff. Cause I know I have, and I can't be alone, you know, just when you show that other side. So it is a constant battle. We do try our best. And I would gingerly angle towards attempting some of those bigger shows. Like I, I don't fault the people who you listed, you know, they, hmm. they, I'm sure they were trying exactly what I was saying. You know, it's a, yeah, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, it's a tough road to talk, but let's go back to Ancient sure. Apocalypse. Um, you watched right. the full series, I think I remember from your... Yes, <laughs> I, I sat and dealt with all of it. How did you feel it compared to other similar shows? I think you have seen one or two episodes of Ancient Aliens and others. Oh, I have. How did it compare to... Um, okay, so one thing about Ancient Aliens where where you can almost defended in a weird way is it's so over the top that hmm. most people or a huge percentage watching it know that it's absolute <laughs> silliness, you know, cause it's so far out there and people will watch it just for sort of basic entertainment. And again, they know that they're, yeah. they're like, yeah, I know there's no such thing as <laughs> aliens in Atlantis, but dude, the show is fun. And I got to say again, to weirdly um, defend ancient aliens that show has a really good production value. They it looks good. It's a good looking, professionally run show. You know, I mean, they're saying absolute crap, but it's the editing, the <laughs> the uh, sort of uh, movement of the show. They they do mm -hmm. a really really good job. Uh, and sometimes in the more scientific, real archaeology shows, sometimes they don't compete in that manner, and they need to. So. You know, ancient aliens in that sense, it's it's so out there that a lot of people understand. They kind of get the joke. But what's yeah. worse, I think, about ancient apocalypse is that it seems real-ish. Like for somebody who doesn't know any better, they can be pulled in and it seems like there's some sort of truth to it or some sort of science to it. And and so in that way, I think ancient apocalypse is worse because it it feels real-ish, you know. And it's, it's just not. It's a very well edited and done and professionally, mm -hmm. you know, laid out. And yeah. even if the drone shots are a bit 2010, it's still good. <laughs> hey, good looking. I, on I it. loved the drone so shots actually because you know, <laughs> even though everything they say is just an absolute fabrication, and Graham Hancock is a total charlatan. I mean, it, it, it's <laughs> he is an absolute utter like textbook fraud. You know, hmm. and he's been saying the same thing for 30 years. That's the other thing. It's like, dude, he has he has retreaded <laughs> these same stupid stories ever since the 90s. And and the general public doesn't know that they have a very short attention span and a very short memory. So they don't remember hmm. the other five times he did this in 1995 and 2000, 2005, 2010. <laughs> you know, you hear it again and again and again. And uh, it's 
again, Netflix, Netflix knows how to make a show, you know? So yeah, even back to something like the drone shots, um, I know they're kind of 2010. I know maybe they're a little, you know, not the most current, but they look a hell of a lot better than most other archaeology shows. Some of those shots of like Great Serpent Mound and, you know, some of those others. Poverty Point, which is a great site. Um, hmm. The look from that show is great. Unfortunately, it's just full of just absolute false magical thinking made up narrative. <laughs> But uh, if we continue on the made-up narrative, what what did you have the most issue with in the show? That's so it was that's well a hard done, one. But I, was the <laughs> I'm going to have to cherry pick my own data because there's so many possibilities <laughs> here. Um, I think I think the stuff I talked about this a little on my podcast. I think the stuff that truly made me, and I actually did this, like actually say. Ah, oh, boo! You know, like actually made me react in a negative <laughs> manner. Like, oh, good lord! Was um, I thought the worst one was the Bimini Road, which is the Stones of Atlantis, which is in I think is it Bermuda? It's in the Caribbean, and uh, yeah. it's these stones that are very shallow, but they're underwater. Like, you know, what are they? Twenty five feet deep or something? They are geological formations we have known this for decades upon decades this has been disproven <laughs> a thousand and one times and when graham hancock brought up the stupid stupid bimini road bs i was like you have got to be kidding me this is just the dumbest most ignorant although he's a charlatan and it worked so yeah whatever but in terms of any kind of science there is no other side to that it has nothing to do with humans. And that one is something I've got pushed back a ton on my YouTube channel, you know, because actually I did, I did a little like five minute YouTube video where I make fun of them and yeah. I got so much hate, but it was so fun. <laughs> but, but that was one of the things, Oh, you deny the, you, then you explain the Bimini road stones. I'm like geological, they're geological, geological, but those people, it's like a religious movement. You can't um, reason them out of it. And that's one of the true sadnesses. Mm. You know, you can't just show them the overwhelming data. They believe whatever Graham Hancock says. And unfortunately, Graham Hancock controls the narrative on this because he set it up. That's what a good charlatan does. That's why the first five minutes of Ancient Apocalypse is all about how Graham Hancock has been treated so poorly. Because that's the yeah, setup. He has to be the victim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you he has to have the victim narrative. And and so he has that from the beginning. First five minutes of the show. That's what it's about. It's not about archaeology. It's about victimization of Graham Hancock. <laughs> and then he controls that narrative. So whenever you or I say anything against him, we're just victimizing him. We're not telling the truth. We're not using facts. We're just we're bullies who are victimizing him and we have closed minds. Frederick, you and I are so close minded. We just we don't very see that we are the Bimini road. We don't see that that was actually made by people and they walked around in Bermuda, <laughs> uh, whatever. Like it's so stupid, but that's the deal. Yeah. Something that's fun to do, especially with the Bimini road, because I find it so boring is to flip it. So <laughs> the origin or one of the origins for the idea is from Edgar, Edgar Casey, you know, the sleeping prophet. Mm -hmm. He uh, spoke about Bimini Road and how it was part of Atlantis, right. part of his 700 lifetime and all of that, you know. 
all weird stuff. And he also went there to treasure hunt. That was his big claim yeah, that course. he would find treasure in Bimini Road. And when he got there, he made, um, you know, the Joseph Smith, you should dig there to find um, gold type of things, but you can't find it if you yeah. want to find it. If you're doing it for greed, you won't <laughs> find my gold. <laughs> I mean, you tell that to these Bimini Road believers, they just shuts up and walk away and then call you close-minded because yes. <laughs> this part of the story isn't really you know, presented by Hancock, the esoteric uh, yeah. sleeping prophet oh. side of the... You know, <laughs> if I have a stroke during this interview, it's your fault, Frederick, okay? Um, this, I know, this stupid, stupid, ignorant crap. It's like, you're like, come on, guys. Can we just... Let's all just kind of take a breath. You know, but... Again, like I said, it's there's a religious movement vibe to it, like where where mm. it has nothing to do with data or good sense or common sense, or, you know, none of that. Again, it's and it's funny to experience that. Like I've just the amount of attacks I've gotten. Again, I can laugh it off, and for the most part, it's funny. <laughs> but I, I wonder if you experience this too. Like when you get the sheer volume of attacks, it does kind of weigh on you a tiny bit. You know, like when, if you have like a thousand people who hate you, you're like, man, you know, and it's, and I noticed they try and make it political too. They try and put me in like a political, uh, like, like a certain folder politically. And I'm like, this yeah. has nothing to do with politics, you know, but they do. And I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's an odd life we lead doing this. Yeah. Luckily I haven't gotten too much. I get the. Um occasional all caps um, letter but um, so far i might be uh, a bit spared oh. but uh, then i you know openly live in this social hellscape called sweden where we have healthcare oh, yeah. and stuff like that so yeah you know oh. it's <laughs> you know i'm i'm tired of your communist uh, attitudes okay <laughs> um i know it's it's so silly but you know since you're doing stuff on um ancient apocalypse i never got the level of hate I got until I did the ancient apocalypse thing. Um, yeah. So, Hey, you might, you might be joining me soon, my friend. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see the first uh, uh, videos are up on YouTube now with um, Yeb card and Brian Dunning. So we'll see right. how it <laughs> beware hands out. But yeah. um, when it comes to dealing with these um, fringe theories, you describe it as a cult. Do you think we have to yeah. approach them in a bit different way than just present the facts and hope that they will buy it? Or do you feel that we have to kind of okay. convert them in a sense? No, I think there's no converting. Again, it's a religious movement, you know, so mm. it doesn't. Um, what I've found, I found a bunch of stuff like there's a bunch of stuff I can talk about here. First, I always like to act in good faith. So even if somebody comes to me and it says some really like wild stuff. I will explain it in a data centric approach one time, you know, and I'll be really kind and really open up like, hey, look, actually, you know, modern archaeology says this, this and this. There you go. Yeah. But 95 percent of the time they come back with like, you're a fraud. You know, like I, I had one today. That's what they were saying, you know, and I, I've gotten it so many times that so I will act in good faith one time. 
but it's the old, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of thing, where I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole and argue them back and forth, back and forth. I might make fun yeah. of you if you call me a fraud or something, because that's cruel. You're not, you don't get to just call me a fraud. If you call me a fraud, then it's open season on you. And I, I, I'm not, I won't be cruel, but I'm going to make fun of you, you know, because yeah. that's, sorry, man, you don't get to be ignorant and just vomit your ignorance on the world. Um, that's what you're going to get. Uh, so there's that. I find the one honest approach time because I'm not here to make people feel bad. You know, I'm, I'm here to make people want to like archaeology. I'm here to be honest. I'm here to be open. I'm here to reach out to the public and be like, hey, there's this yeah. fascinating story. Um, that's why I'm always torn about like we when we started talking about actually being on ancient aliens or something like that. I'm like, oof, that's a, that's a tough one. But in terms of other ways of dealing with this, the the whole debate thing has come up a lot. You know, should you debate? Mm. Should you ba- debate Graham Hancock? And I would say that the short answer is no. Um, but the longer answer is more varied. Like, I would never, or I don't think professional archaeologists in general should ever debate him in a debate style manner. Meaning where there's yeah. podiums and you have like a point counterpoint, because as soon as you do that, you've lost because you've made it seem like it's 50 50. It's not. It's 100 percent zero. We're right. <laughs> they're wrong. There's no 10 percent. There's no 8 percent. It's 100 zero. Right. So if you come in again with the podiums, with the Nixon versus Kennedy debate of 1960, you can't do that. <laughs> and also Graham Hancock does all these like group shows it's a cash grab for him so all you're doing is enabling him to sell his show that much more again he's a total charlatan and fraud so i I would also say if for some reason that came up i'd be like okay i get whatever he's getting because there's a money approach too okay if you're if you're dumping 30k on his head you dump 30k on my head i don't do this for 600 bucks in a free hotel room (laughs) You know, like it, it let's, let's be even then I'm not, here, I'm not here to make Graham Hancock money, but with, so with that yeah. said, I'm, I'm against that kind of format. If it's more of a Joe Rogan podcast that comes up a lot, you know, or more of a sort of relaxed discussion of sort of two individuals where it's just free form. I would be more into that. I think if somebody does that, I don't think that's the end of the world, but And this is where academics can do poorly. They need to know how they cast. And so if you go on the Graham, uh, sorry, the Joe Rogan podcast, (laughs) (laughs) if you go on that and you're an archaeologist who casts very cliche and academic and nerdy, you might come off terrible because Graham Hancock knows how to run the media. You know, so Graham Hancock will come out. And then if you're like, well, you see, actually, in archaeology, you don't understand because my Excel spreadsheet says that the carbon-14 date, the audience will be against you. You know, you'll, you, <laughs> you're cooked before you start. So you need to be somebody who's a dynamic public speaker, somebody who can talk, you know, talk off the uh, top of their head, somebody who can kind of hmm. stick to the narrative, somebody who doesn't get flustered, right? It, it has to be an archaeology type person who can deal in a media environment. That's all I would say on that. So if, if, if it's somebody like that and they're chilling out on, you know, sort of a one-on-one just discussion, I think that is probably worthwhile, but it's, that's a, it's a tough, 
it's a tough call. Do you have any names that you would like to see in that case? Not to throw anybody under the bus, but... Uh... Besides the great Dr. Andrew Kinkella? <laughs> no. Um, it, you know, I, I, what's funny is I can't... I can't... No singular names come to mind like this guy, you know, this person. Oh, call her. She kicks ass. You know, it's it it, it just sort of depends. Um, it's funny. I think quite a few of us and not very few of us could do it at the same time. Um, hmm. uh, I don't know. You know, tough call. What about yourself? What, what, what would you think? You know, uh, I'm a bit torn, as you're saying go up against Graham Hancock on your Rogan is to set you up to look bad because Rogan and his mm-hmm. buddy, they are, they know each other. They hang out. Good time. And Hancock is, yep. as you have made a point of in the past, he doesn't need truth to speak. If he feels threatened, yep. he will just move into an um, area where an archaeologist might do, might, might, you know, not do so well. He will move to esotericism and look right. through the myths from a theosophy kind of way or move to geology that he's an expert to on yeah. as with everything else. Yeah, I know. It, the, it would have to be just him. None of his other cronies, none of the other, <laughs> what's his name, Randall Carlson or whatever. <laughs> he doesn't get to have three people and then you're just by yourself there. You know, that's not that's not fair. One on one, you know, and just and just a chill, just sort of talk. Um, I don't find anything necessarily wrong with that. But it's it's against a tough call because Graham Hancock is can basically in some ways, Graham Hancock can only win and the archaeologist can only lose. So mm. Mm, but see, on the flip side, you also need public outreach, you know, and it's a great yeah. way for real archaeologists to get public outreach again, you know, um, is is. Any public outreach, good public outreach. Maybe it is. Uh, It's it's a tough call. And the (laughs) academic field has got to be cool with whoever goes up. They can't disown them in two seconds. You know, oh, my God, did you hear Kinkella went up there? He didn't say the right thing. So we disown him. You know, academics have a terrible penchant for eating their own. You know, mm. so they would have to just stand tall and be like, no, he went out there. He tried his best. Um, we didn't do it. He did. So that's cool. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, could open a way call. up for more archaeology in broadcasting in a sense. Hopefully mm-hmm. something positive exactly. comes out for it. Yeah. Something like that would be excellent. Um, it's that road, as I'm sure you know, is a, is a very tough road getting out there to really touch the public as an archaeologist. Not say you do, not just rewrite your dissertation again and be like, oh, that's public outreach. No, it's not. You got to go, yeah. you know, YouTube, podcast, television appearances, whatever, and, and have Where a little fun with it. Where the people are, basically. And Absolutely. especially adapt to the new content. We can't just... Long form podcasts are fun to do, as I tend to do, but we can't forget the TikTok and all the new media that's getting out there in a shorter attention span. There's yep. a few that do what good a great content, point. but we're far in between on mm-hmm. that side. I'm also starting yeah. to come up in the age where I realize I don't understand TikTok. I can't really get through on it. But uh, Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. And we can't do everything. You know, like I think about that for myself. <laughs> it's like I have a YouTube channel, you know, and I enjoy doing it. But it, would I want to do TikTok? Oh, God, I got, man, you know, you, you sort of have to choose <laughs> one or two or three and, 
You can't do ten yeah, different social media outlets all the time. <laughs> you know, it takes it takes some it takes a little effort there. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 a difficult position, you know, with with that we find ourselves in with kind of a push pull mm. on both sides. You have the the crazy Graham Hancock world that you have to deal with. But then if you go deal with it, you worry that the academic side would be like, Oh, he's not a real academic anymore. Let us shun him. Yeah. We need you know, to be more open towards our own. And well, mm-hmm. many of us do public outreach. For example, here in Sweden, many excavation have public days where the public come and visit the sites and talk. And there's a lot of that going on. I'm not sure how you do it in America. Do you have this type of, public archaeology where you can go and visit a site and get to talk with archaeologists in the field yeah sometimes it depends sometimes that's a kind of in the united states sometimes that's a national parks thing where they have sort of an archaeology aspect sometimes in the united states some of the archaeology sites have to be kept a bit secret because of looting and that kind of stuff so it's it's a tough it's a very tough balance. You, you have um, like hmm. the indigenous communities in the United States. So you have to kind of keep in the loop, you know, to make sure you're not doing anything untoward for for those guys. You know, you, so it's a again, you're, you're walking the tightrope yet again, you know, with, with this kind of thing. But you want to have public outreach. Um, and we have things. There's local stuff like Archaeology Day. We had one of those a couple mm. months ago, which which I thought it was it went pretty well. Uh, but getting the word out for that kind of stuff needs to happen too. Sometimes we'll have like an archaeology day <laughs> at the maybe at the university or at the local state park or whatever, which will be great. But maybe not enough people know it is happening, you know. So, yeah. um, so just need to step out a bit more in social media and promotion mm-hmm. and all of that. Yeah, and. And say yes to um, like I've given talks that are that aren't in archaeology groups. Like there was a uh, astronomy group that that wanted me to talk. There was a geology group that wanted me to talk. And so that's you know it's out mm. again outside the comfort zone. It's a different group. I love doing stuff like that. You know because because you're you're going again into the lines then into where it's not comfortable. It's something different, and um, that can be really fun. Yeah, definitely something to keep in mind when we talk with each other. But um, Andrew, I will let you um, go here in a moment. But um, what would you like to see in season two of Ancient Apocalypse? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Season two of Ancient Apocalypse. (laughs) Um, Oh, I know what I would. Here's what I want to see in season two of Ancient Apocalypse. All right. I want it to be like. Season two, The Revenge, where all of um, uh, all of the estates of of the old pseudo archaeologists from like 100 years ago, they all sue Graham Hancock for libel because he's stolen all their ideas. Right. So that's what I want. I want season two of Ancient Apocalypse to be in the courtroom. That's what I want. There you go. That's my dream. That sounds amazing. Courtroom uh-huh. drama with uh, Donnelly's and yeah. uh, Blavatsky's uh, relatives. That's one of my faves, where the estate of Ignatius Donnelly uh, sues Graham Hancock for plagiarism. <laughs> oh, I would watch that. Definitely. And Law and Order style, everything is a yeah. bit gray. And <laughs> the, the same production value that they used on the Netflix show with, with, the, with the music, you know, like boom, boom, boom. So 
Mr. Hancock. You know, like that's <laughs> it writes itself, man. Uh, definitely do, definitely do. I need to go mm-hmm. and write a script for that and pitch to Netflix. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, Andrew, thank you very much. And if people want to hear more of you and see more of you, where should they head out to? The, the top two places would be simply the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, which comes out once every two weeks. I believe it comes out on every other Wednesday. That's part of the um, the APN, the Archaeology Podcast Network. And then I also have my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology, where I upload videos once a week at most. Sometimes I get a little lazy and it's once every three (laughs) weeks, depending, you know, but but it is current. And and so those are the two great places. And you can always um, write in the comments in in those worlds and I can get back to you in that manner. Great. Thank you very much for your time and uh, have a great day. Hey, same to you, Frederick. It's been great. Thank you so much for asking me on. Thank you again, Dr. Kinkella. You find his podcast Pseudo-Archaeology with Dr. Kinkella and his YouTube channel Kinkella Teaches Archaeology in the show notes. Next time we will close the Hancock saga. We will look at Gubli Tepe, Bimini Road and the Scablands. We also have a special guest, of course, nonetheless than Jens Notroff. So make sure to tune in for the finale of this journey. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friends. That's even better, actually. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com, where you find more info about me and the podcast. You can also find me on the most social media sites, and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or just itching to write that email in all caps, I know you do, I know you do, you can find my contact info on the website. And you find all the sources and resources used to create this podcast on the same website. You also often find further reading suggestions if you want to learn even more about the subjects that we bring up here. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is from the amazing band called Trasku who just released a new EP who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes down below here. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there.